The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. How would you feel if you had verifiable proof of unusual, some would call them supernatural abilities, gained from three NDEs, and yet few mainstream scientists were willing to study the facts? What can NDEers do to provoke scientific studies of the psychic gifts NDEs can provide? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our guest today, Shirley Black, has had three powerful near-death experiences at key times in her life, as a toddler, a 10-year-old, and as an adult. Shirley has been on NDE Radio before, and if you are listening to this as an archived show, I would urge you to first listen to an interview I did with Cheryl Lee at the IONS conference in Washington, D.C. in 2013. That interview can be found in two parts on the NDE radio website, beginning with the show broadcast on January 27th, and then the following week's February 3rd show of 2014. There you'll find Cheryl Lee's fascinating, detailed descriptions of what happened during her NDE's and their after effects as well. Cheryl Lee, welcome to NDE Radio. Hi Lee, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you at last. We we tried and failed last week, so it's really good to hear your voice. Um, I've suggested that listeners go back and, and listen to our previous uh, interviews, so we needn't go into the same detail about your NDEs, but perhaps we could begin with your grandmother's role in each event and how she may still guide you today. Oh, gee. Um well, I mean, my first NDE was actually with um, my mom's mother, um, and and really, I she was kind of always there as my childhood friend when when I was quite little, and and my grandfather, who he almost died when 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 Grandma passed away. I mean, it was just. I mean that's pretty common <laughs> that that people often don't don't survive the death of of their partners when they're older, and um, so when I came along and suddenly I think he kind of felt that connection to her in a way. He was very very fond of me when I was little. He was retired and used to um, babysit me a lot when my mom was at work. So I, I was very close to him when I was a small child. Yes, and, and he he recognized key phrases that you would use as being yeah, somehow from sure. from his uh, from his wife, right? Yeah, yeah, because she spoke. She was the only one who spoke German. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, um, she passed away just before I was born, so she couldn't have um, told me well well <laughs> any other time. <laughs> but um, you know, after he passed away, I really didn't see her as much. And when I, other than I did, you know, I mean, I saw her in my second NDE, but that was before he passed away. So my third NDE was actually my other grandmother. Okay. Who, who I had grown up with and known, you know, throughout my childhood and into my early 20s. And she passed away when, when I was in my early 20s. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was so grateful that, you know, for anyone to be there when I had my, my third ND at the age of 29, she was absolutely the right person to be there because she had, 
she was kind of the one who was okay with any of the unusual things <laughs> I was doing as a child. Um, mm-hmm. She was the one who suggested that that um, art art would be really helpful for me, art and music. Um, she had been a professional musician herself, and she was very creative. And a lot of the issues I had after a distressing NDE at the end of age of 10, she was very, very good at suggesting ways to help me cope as a child growing up um, and being an NDE-er. And, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm so grateful um, for him, her influence throughout my life because art and spending time alone in nature and music were all things that really do... Um, kind of help you cope with with coming back after a near-death experience. Yes. You know, no, and and do, I don't do know th- that, that many uh, clinicians would recognize those things. <laughs> <laughs> do you suppose that uh, because both grandmothers were um, involved in your um, NDEs and in your ability to cope with NDEs, that they had some sort of uh, gifts themselves, some insight, perhaps some um, inheritable genes that uh, gave you such uh, abilities after after all of this. Um, I, you know, I certainly think that there's some evidence that um, some of my experiences are clearly things that have kind of run in the family. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, I didn't. I didn't know, you know, my mom's mother, but certainly her sister, um, my aunt Mamie, um, was one of those people who, if she had a dream, everybody listened to it because it, it you know, if she said, "Oh, you know, I had a dream we shouldn't go there," people wouldn't go there, uh-huh. um, you know, and and um, and I also her younger brother, who is my my great uncle Donald, he used to talk about um, seeing the young men who died around him when he was a soldier in the Second World War. And so, he carried so, them with him all his life. And I'm sure that everybody, well, I knew that growing up, all the adults just kind of thought that, you know, that was one of those crazy things that, you know, the it, it was just uh, an aberration caused by post-traumatic stress from, you know, surviving the war, but I think it was more than that. Perhaps uh, uh, the PTSD opened up a, a window that he wouldn't ordinarily have access to. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's quite possible. Um, you know, I know that some of the things he used to suppress um, the images uh, of the other soldiers, um, well, the big thing was alcohol and you know, he would take alcohol to forget. And when I was going through my, you know, my rebellious teenage phase, that was one of the first things I discovered, that if I wanted to suppress um, unusual abilities, that, or at least some unusual abilities, it didn't work for everything, but alcohol made me more normal. Mm. So, you know, I went through the the wild late teen, you know, college years phase where I drank in class and just so that I could be like everybody else. <laughs> Although I kind of outgrew that phase because it's not something you can maintain for very long, and it's you know 
not much fun when you're not a teenager anymore. <laughs> so, so when, uh, well, this is interesting because when they talk about people having genes that uh, give them a um, tendency toward alcoholism, uh, well, for instance, Native Americans, maybe it is instead uh, of um, being a, a genetic weakness, it's a genetic strength toward understanding the, the paranormal that they uh, are frightened by or bothered by and they want to suppress it. I don't know. I don't know. I know there's a connection between attention deficit and alcoholism. Hmm. But uh, I have no idea if, if um, there's a connection between, uh, you know, psi experiences and <laughs> other and than alcoholism. Yeah, although I've heard from other... And actually... Um, I'm not an al- alcoholic in terms of I never craved alcohol. I never mm-hmm. liked the taste of it. It was not something that that I ever did because I liked the alcohol. I just liked the fact that it made me more like everybody else. Yes. You know, so it it it's not really true alcoholism because um, you know, left to my own devices I really don't like this stuff very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it, it it might be an, an area of research uh, for uh, people that are interested in alcoholism to, to take a look at. I mean, there might be this just this variant on uh, on the appeal of alcohol that is really to mask um, psychic phenomena. Actually, what I what I want to cover today is the state of research uh, into the NDE phenomenon and the after effects of NDEs. And I know you found it, uh, it's a challenge to interest scientists in your psychokinetic uh, abilities. Um, well, I what's... mean, you know, one of the first things, I mean, the first challenge is to find out um, that any researchers actually do this kind of research. Um, mm. When I was first trying to come to terms with, um, you know, poltergeist activity, I, you know, I was in graduate school, so I had access to a great library. I mean, you know, I knew how to look up scientific um, works in just about any field there is. I had had access to every search engine there is, and I looked and I looked and I looked, and I could not find anything. And it was very disheartening. Um, And I thought, okay, well, this, this, you know, this must be something crazy. It just it, because obviously if, if this was real, somebody would be studying it. And right. I finally stumbled across a book um, by a scientist by the name of Dean Radin. Um, the book was called Entangled Minds. I found, you know, I, I was fortunate I found a copy of it in the university library. And I read it through, and I absolutely cried. It was such a relief because it gives a really good overview of um, parapsychological research that up until that point, I couldn't find any evidence that there was such a thing as parapsychological research, uh, mm. at least nothing modern. I, You know, you, you hear about things going on 100 years ago, but you just figure, okay, people just didn't know better back then, which actually wasn't the case. I mean, a lot of the people who historically were involved in parapsychological research or were, you know, Nobel Prize winners and very highly esteemed scientists that uh, put their careers in great jeopardy by looking into these topics. Um, and, and, you know, so when I finally came across 
first book, um, you know, I just read it over and over and over again. <laughs> mm. It was like, it was such a relief. Um, you know, I, mean, I still don't have my own copy of the book because I've only read the one from the library. <laughs> I'll have to get a copy for myself. Um, well, is it possible that that kind of research was more or less undercover? Because now we hear, you know, governments, especially the CIA and the Russians, for example, have experimented and and perhaps uh, researched uh, uh, not only your your uh, psychokinetic type things, but also uh, uh, long distance viewing and and yeah, things that would enable them to spy. Yeah, you're talking about remote viewing, which is um, most famously known as Project Stargate back in the 70s. And I mean, remote viewer 001, um, who I believe still does that kind of work today, um, was an nde named Joe McMonagall. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, I find it interesting, actually, m- many of the famous psychics that have been involved in parapsychological researchers have been NDEers. <laughs> well, because a lot of their abilities seem to have evolved after they had their near-death experience. Or at least they're opened up. I think, you know, I think everybody has these abilities. I think it's just something opens you up to realizing you have the abilities. Mm. And and um, an NDE will clearly do that to you because it will shift your worldview in a big way, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I think they just kind of let you know more of what you can do and bring these things out, and, you know, and the sad thing is that parapsychologists, for the most part, don't know a lot about near-death experience research, um, because groups like IONS are kind of very separate from that in many ways, so... You know, you know, and they really need to kind of get together and 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 look at each other's notes. You know, I was just I was just thinking that last night because I happened to listen to a twelve part interview that um, was done on Coast to Coast with Art Bell, uh, Doctor Brian Weiss, who has done hypnosis and regressed patients uh, to uncover the reasons for their psychic conditions and find he was taking them back into past lives. And also that he could take them into future lives, uh, and um, he he's looked at NDEs because he sees uh, a connection, but so few people have really tied all of this together into one giant um, research project. Um, I mean, past lives, uh, reincarnation, near death experience, psychokinetic abilities. I mean, why not? Why hasn't there been some um, overall? A picture drawn of what's going on here. Well, one of the big problems is that researchers who do this kind of work, for the most part, are doing it in isolation and are trying not to get themselves in trouble with it. I mean, there's, you know, like Dean Radin's fortunate because he's the senior scientist at um, the IONS Institute, I-O-N-S, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And so he's in a paid position where he can just devote all his, his time to this kind of research, and he doesn't have... Like, it, it's not like he's at a university where he has to worry that a new department chair will come in and shut everything he's doing down. And I've talked to researchers who've gone through exactly that, where um, 
they've had the research chair look at what they were doing, decide that it was something that they didn't want their university to be involved with, and they were shut down. Mm. Um, in fact, like I did some some work. Um, I went went to Texas A and M um, to work with a researcher, and he actually had to move all of his project to a private lab in Europe because the department chair um, was just not pleased about the fact that there might be um, a research project involving psychokinesis being done there. Um, mm. and, and really, the university gave up quite a lot by doing that because this was a well-funded project that was bringing in a lot of high-tech laser equipment and you know, just lots of great toys that any physics laboratory would love to be able to sit there and play with for various applications. And they were willing to let that go to a private lab in another country rather than have to admit that there might be some work being done there on psychokinesis. Mm. So, I mean, there's, it's difficult. Like, you know, um, I, you know, I have some sympathy for the researchers because of the fact that it is difficult to do this. But then mainstream science in general needs to start taking a more intellectually honest approach to how things work in the world. Um, you know, I mean, it, there's a definite need for a paradigm change um, in terms of things like uh, consciousness studies. And, you know, and the, the mind-body connection, where, you know, does mind equal brain? Well, the traditional view is, yes, they're absolutely the same thing, and yet there's a fairly significant body of evidence that suggests that that might not be the case. Um, yeah. You know, and, but, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've heard, like, when you listen to some of the NDE researchers that will say it's, you know, NDEs are a result of oxygen deprivation. Oh, and, yes. You know, and that's uh, our answer for all of them. And, we you know, we don't need to look any further because we think we have one case where that that is, or we've seen it in rats. And, of course, they never explain that, well, we don't really know what the rats were experiencing, whether they were <laughs> seeing the light or anything while we were doing this to them. We've just decided that that, you know, this is it. it you know, this is what's happening in humans because we've done an experiment on rats. And and <laughs> they completely ignore the fact that NDEs can occur to people who are absolutely physically fine and not oxygen-deprived and not in any physical danger. I mean, you know, people have these experiences in a whole spectrum of conditions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, coming up with one answer isn't really going to work. That way, you know, coming out with one physical answer isn't going to work that way. And I, and I, I remember you telling me at one point that um, there were there were people who were willing to research um, micro effects of uh, psychokinesis, uh, for instance, whether uh, what card you were going to draw next or the throw of a dice. Yeah, random um, number generators is what they use now. But you're right. right. You won't look at macro effects. But they won't look at at you throwing vegetables across the room at your husband. Well, I mean that's something you know, you, you know, just to be very fair, is that 
that's not an effect I can produce on demand in a laboratory. But I <laughs> no. have produced smaller macro effects in laboratories, and I've been to laboratories. And the problem always seems to come up with, no matter what effect you can produce, um, somebody will be there going, but maybe it could be this. I mean, it probably isn't, but, you know, maybe it could be this. So now we have to control for this. So really the only kind of macro effect that you'll ever get anyone to accept is if you can do it from a very long distance, like I'm talking, produce produce an effect in laboratory, say, in California when I'm in Canada. Um, and even uh, then... And even then, you're going to get somebody who will say, oh, yeah, but somebody in the lab could have jiggled something. Oh, for heaven's sake. You know, I mean, so I don't I don't know that there ever will be, you know, a satisfactory lab experiment that's going to convince people that macro PK um, truly exists. I, when I've done my own experiments, I don't even look at that issue about is PK real. I just don't. I just look at what circumstances seem to facilitate this object moving inside a sealed container. And mm. that's where, where I've kind of gone with it on my own work because I can't convince the world that I'm not cheating because there will always be something, well, it could be this or it could be that. And even when you go to a laboratory and you work with researchers where they can put the controls on and and it still occurs, um, there's always somebody going to say, well, maybe they're not being honest, <laughs> or, you know, mm. or maybe the controls aren't as good as they say, or maybe there was a slight earthquake occurring while the experiment was going on, or, I, I, you know, I, I mean, there's just too many, it, it's kind of the dirty test tube, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the dirty test tube critique, where you could take any scientific experiment and suggest that the methodology was flawed by things that aren't typically covered in a peer-reviewed article, such as, well, maybe the test tube was dirty, and that's why they got the results they got. And, of course, by the time something goes through peer review, it's been years since the actual experiment's taken place in, in most cases, and it's very difficult to produce the test tube and say, but look, it's clean. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, you can find fault in, in any study, and, and that's just, there's no perfect experiment. Exactly. And, what, and what, about, um, what about the uh, physicists who are now saying that we're all just energy, that everything is energy, and wouldn't they then want to see how we could l- link with another so-called physical object with a with some sort of an energy that could move that object. In other words, couldn't it go to the realm of theoretical physics as a as a uh, a place for research? Well, I mean, I think that theoretical physics has already looked at these issues um, in terms of Bell's theorem, you know, um, and entanglement. And I mean, it, I'm not a physicist, so this really isn't. You know, um, it's, it's not the best best uh, thing to interview me on. There's a lot of really good physicists that, um, like Brian uh, Josephson, who've come up with reasons why these you know PK could happen <laughs> that, that that psychic phenomena make sense with physics. And I mean, 
the bigger issue I think that physicists need to look at is the role of consciousness on on how things uh, work. And, uh, you know, the issue of consciousness certainly comes up in physics in very class, you know, in that where quantum physics kind of the starting point. Um, and it's something that I think most universities these days don't even address. Um, they kind of skirt over that whole issue. That's just uh, some silly stuff that, that uh, you know, physicists many years ago were looking at. And, yeah, they came up with some good usable material that we still look at, but we're not going to get into uh, the issue of consciousness. Um, I think a really good book to look at is, is um, How the Hippie Saved Physics. Which, which actually shows how um, quantum encryption technology, which is used by banks today, came out of um, hippies in the 70s, uh, you know, physicists who were looking at the issue of, of consciousness. <laughs> mm. uh, but, but, I mean, that's not really something that, that I'm an expert in. <laughs> Not Cheryl, Cheryl, ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl Lee, are you in touch with any uh, other people who can do what you can do uh, with psychokinesis? Um, yeah, actually. Um, I have a friend who's actually a physicist who's had some luck doing this. I mean, I mean, a number of people I've actually sh- shown, you know, how to do it will be able to do it themselves for a while. Sometimes they continue on. Sometimes they can do it for a couple of days, and then they kind of freak out, and it stops working. Hmm. Um, so you you could actually teach a course on how to do this. Yeah, I've, I've actually I did that at the Rhine for an afternoon, and yeah, strangely, it's one of those things that usually if people see it work, they they can actually do it. I had um, actually taught a, a friend of mine who was. Um, the director of integrated sciences at a university. Um, mm. I went into her, to her office and showed her, and it, she said it worked for her for about two days, and then it stopped, and she ne- was never able to get it to work again. <laughs> <laughs> but she said that she thinks she just kind of talked herself out of doing it. Uh, uh, I I wanted to ask you one one last question. We're running out of time here. How how has this gift or other psychic gifts that you receive benefited you or hurt you? Uh, what how's it affected your life? Um. Well, you know, I think I, I think as many people who have psychic experiences will say, the greatest cause of anxiety is how other people might react to them. Mm. And I went through that for a long time. I mean, I thought it made me you know, a bad scientist that I was interested in studies on this stuff and that I was interested in research on this stuff because, you know, I kind of was indoctrinated into the party line um, through my own education in science that these things don't happen. They aren't real. Only crazy people consider them, you know. Like, you you get those really negative messages um, going through mainstream academic um, training and it's hard to it's hard to see it differently. And even I mean, in clinical settings, 
you know, one of the things, I was actually just at an online parapsychological conference on the weekend, and one of the things I found very distressing is that when um, clinicians talk about um, psi experiences, they invariably pathologize them, even though these are people who admit these experiences are real and occur, coming from the clinical training they've had, everything they see is is instantly pathologized. <laughs> so because so, it's, the, it's the medical model of, of you know, being, being a psychologist, is that people come to you with your tr- troubles and you fix them. So if people come to you with psi experiences, you must fix them. <laughs> and that's really disheartening. Um, I mean, not everybody takes that approach, and I think there's a growing movement among psychologists, not just in treating psi, but in treating a lot of experiences, positively or negatively, trying to teach things, you know, trying to approach um, psychology in terms of wellness rather than in terms of pathology. But so right. it's, might... it's, it's not something to be healed. It's something to be studied and, and uh, expanded yeah. upon. Yeah. Well, and something just to be understood. And, and I think as I understand my experiences better and um, they're becoming more positive for me that I'm, you know, I don't feel the need myself to pathologize them because I I think I did for a very long time. Um, And I, I would think that if more people could just look at the experiences and go, okay, this is what I'm having and this is what I'm going through, um, instead of going, oh my God, this is crazy, which is how we often all start it, um, mm-hmm. they would generally be more positive. And in fact, most of people who share experiences with me, like at the IONS conference and stuff, overwhelmingly their experiences of contacting a loved one who's just passed away. And, you know, and those are incredibly healing experiences. They and, are. You know? They are. So most Shirley, people, oh, I, I'm, I, I hate to cut you off, uh, but it, we are... Out of time for today. Okay. Um, <laughs> I want to thank our guest, Shirley Black, for describing some of the dif- difficulties she's encountered in trying to get researchers interested in the after effects of her life-changing NDEs. And if you'd like to listen again uh, to this or any of our past shows, and I would especially recommend uh, the, the two previous interviews with Shirley, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>